Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Red Mage. Before I get into my entire spiel about supporting the podcast and the status of the project and other core elements of the show, I want to bring attention to a series of inhumane homeless sweeps in Echo Park. Los Angeles is undergoing a crisis with a large number of people experiencing chronic homelessness. This past week, homeless communities have been threatened of being displaced having their possessions destroyed and dehumanized in media for false accusations of violence. As a researcher, I'm neutral in order to identify the core issue, but as a human being and resident of Echo Park, I'm really revolted by the treatment of those experiencing chronic homelessness, the arrests of peaceful protesters, and the other lack of empathy from some residents. Some of the most despicable acts were committed by an affluent white male attempting to incite violence amongst protesters by bringing a metal bat and threatening them. This is this is just beyond belief. And having grown up in Echo Park, I can inform you that there's always been a homeless community in the area. Prior to the gentrification of Echo Park, when it was predominantly a Latinx community, there was a lot of there were some measures to alleviate this, but they were very invisible or you know, not very well advocated, and they weren't violent in any means. Until recently, with the revival of Echo Park, there have been a series of those sweeps to remove homeless communities. These sweeps are devastating to those experiencing chronic homelessness as their shelter, their place of belonging, their possessions, everything is just eradicated. The emotional and psychological toll of this is crippling on them. And with and there are really no words that I can muster up that will ever be enough to say how sorry I am for those that are victims of this injustice, especially when there is funding and a slew of organizations willing and able to help address the issue. Sweeping homeless communities, displacing them in entirely different cities, lying about permanent housing, and arresting 182 peaceful protesters with militarized police, and claiming victory for the beautification of a park. It's disappointing, to say the very least, that this is the example our leadership demonstrates. Today, I don't want to ask for any donations or support to the Red Mage. Instead, I would like to humbly request that anyone listening Please follow and support the following organizations. K-Town for All, CCEDLA, Knock LA, Kiwa, Invisible People, Zella Neighborhood Homeless Coalition, LA Can, Ground Game, and an individual called Theodore Henderson. You can follow him on Instagram at T-H-H-E-O Henderson. All one word. And he chronicles the homeless experience as an, an individual experiencing homelessness or chronic homelessness. Anything from donation to spreading the message or volunteering can help make a difference. Most importantly, educate yourselves about chronic homelessness, core issues, and the communities it impacts. There are a lot of YouTube videos, literature, articles, and podcasts you can consume to learn more. The last thing I would ever want to advise anyone is to ask directly a homeless person or someone that is experiencing homelessness, I should say, to take their time, their energy, and their emotional capacity and invest it into you while their lives are in disarray. It's very easy to Google something. It's very easy to go in and find out what resources are available to educate yourself and a lot of these community members who are experiencing chronic homelessness, they're, they're at their end's wit trying to just make it through the day. To have to take the time out of, of their day to kind of piece themselves together enough to listen to you and your, your statements and have them educate you is, is really tolling on them. It's not very considerate or empathetic. Be an advocate for change in design solutions with the community and not for them. And I would like to ask that if any designers are listening or any organizations that have the capacity to help 
provide assistance to the to these organizations that I listed, such as K Town for All, CCEDLA, and Knock LA. I would say please reach out to them and help them design solutions that can counteract this. I'm I'm a very limited bandwidth, and I'm dealing with the mental health aspect um, in my project, but I can't take on everything alone. But that's the beauty of a community. You're not alone. And it is my calling as a red mage to take on these really big quests. And that's what this podcast is all about. And if you're listening to this, I really hope that you'll join me on these quests to tackle these wicked problems in peaceful ways that really benefit the community members that are suffering. Continue on with our exploration of mental health now. Um, we're looking at, we're exploring esports as a scoff case study of an extreme condition of the workplace. And I was absent this previous week. In regards to my ab- my absence, I was gone because I was working on a handful of items to move this project forward. Currently, I'm reaching out to a handful of organizations to see how they operate and what platform, um, and and what the platform I'm developing can do to help them. The method I'm using for this are analogous models and SWOT analysis. These methods are taken from Vijay Kumar's 101 design methods. Analogous models profile and compare how organizations are successful in their funding services and break down their structure. A SWOT analysis is an evaluation of an organization's strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Now, before you get scared by the word threats, let's break down each and every one of these these aspects. So, when we explore strengths of an organization, it provides avenues to highlight the value that these systems offer. And discovering weaknesses in an organization reveals ways to innovate and overcome challenges that hinder the organization from growing or meeting certain objectives. Opportunities is looking at the marketplace and seeing what's going on to increase the likelihood of success and find ways to innovate into that market space. And lastly, we have threats. While this sounds really scary, it isn't. Threats are the barriers uh, such as accessibility, rival industries, and even just environmental conditions as to where someone is developing in a tangible or virtual space. And understanding these systems allows you to address aspects like price point, um, what your value statement really has to be, what are the necessary features, what technologies will you have to bring out, or what technologies will you have to leave behind? Um, what are your what are rival industries doing? How do you address accessibility, and how do you address inclusivity? In the case of this project. I'm leveraging the SWOT analysis to understand what the current systems are and what's really needed, what business models can be used, and what are the barriers I will encounter when developing this this project at a later phase. As a reminder, I'm a designer, an artist, and a researcher, not a mental health specialist, a business major, or representative of any of these communities or organizations I'm uh, designing alongside. Both analogous models and and SWOT analysis help me understand the systems that are in place and inform me of what team members I'm going to need in order to design a viable MVP or minimal viable product. In order for that platform to be viable, it has to be community driven, it has to be sustainable, and it has to be financially stable. That's our triple bottom line. Now, that might seem like a lot, but we're breaking this down into four phases of discover, which is the research, define, approaching the question and really identifying the case studies, um, breaking down um, what te- what technologies will we need to look into and invest, um, and then really addressing what the, the underlying core issue is. And then we get into the develop phase, which is bringing it all along and what the platform is going to be um, you know, branding name, um, developing plans for feedback collection, um, user engagement, and so forth. And finally, we have the develop phase, where we actually put out that MVP into the world, and we we use a 
you know, an entire, you know, entire like platform to get it out there and promote the product and test it and see what we can do to iterate forward. So we're still in the in the discover phase, but we're we're getting really close to shifting into the design into the define phase. But before we jump ahead of ourselves, let's get back into this. The second thing I was doing this week was registering for my certification training with Geek Therapeutics. Geek Therapeutics is an awesome organization that uses psychology of geek culture, um, an interest in video games, comic books, anime, and more to help improve oneself and others around them. Geek Therapeutics offers trainings to clinicians, therapists, counselors, mental health professionals, and other industry professionals to help maximize the improvement of, of health in patients, students, and clients. They also offer trainings for non-professionals for um, self-development and building connections using psychological methods. I'm currently invested in their, um, I currently just invested in their legendary bundle to obtain a series of certifications as a geek specialist. These certifications are authorized by the APA and NBCC. But as mentioned before, I'm not a mental health specialist. My role and purpose with getting these certifications is to inform the game systems I'm designing, to learn about what features are necessary for these systems, and to discover avenues to leverage pop culture in, in this. Um, and we'll get into that a little later. So, so far I've completed three <laughs> certificates and I'm working on completing many more. Geek Therapeutics makes the certification program engaging, concise, and informative. And I highly suggest that you check them out, um, especially if you're, look, if you're a fan of D&D, comics, and cosplay. The final thing <laughs> I did last week was explore the role of technology in mental health. To my surprise, I discovered that artificial intelligence is playing a large role in mental health. Additionally, while diving down this AI rabbit hole, um, my, research, my research reveals AI also plays a huge role in the, in the gaming industry. And, you know, I can't deny the immediate desire to run off with this shiny technology and, you know, and it's, it's frankly because AI and the concept of AI is super cool and it brings up all sorts of these ideas and fantasies. When I, when I first heard about AI or, you know, in these industries and I was, I was hearing the opportunity to potentially use AI, my imagination went off into something like the anime Time of Eve uh, or the Animatrix, or Dot Hacks Morgana. In reality, our current AI and robots are much different. First, let me start off by stating, just because the technology is trending or is the newest technology available doesn't necessarily mean it's the best technology to deploy. When you're considering what technologies integrate into a system, it's absolutely essential to focus on the needs of the users. In my previous episode, I had a guest, uh, Mercy, um, join me and we discussed space. And we had an entire discussion on what space for mental health looked like uh, to meet the needs of the community. In our discussion, Mercy um, focused a lot on physical spaces and tangible self-care kits. She also went into details about a cognitive space to distance herself from the lack of available space. And it was kind of this this mode of listening to music and kind of like just leaving that world behind for a moment. Um, and that interview makes it really apparent that there's a desire for tangibility and a desire to kind of be able to like separate oneself almost mentally from the environment around from the immediate environment around them. So now you may be asking, okay. Why are you bringing up AI if the previous interview highlighted need for tangible space? And the answer in that lies in the analogous models and SWOT analysis. You see, artificial intelligence is springing up in mental health because of how impacted mental health services are in the United States. Get ready for a lot because this, this gets kind of heavy. <laughs> so first, I want to talk about the National Council for Behavioral Health. They conducted a study uh, addressing the accessibility 
of mental health as a core issue in mental health services in the United States. The study includes an online survey of 5,000 Americans and a third-party analysis measuring patients' access to mental health services. It's scary because the study found that nearly 6 in 10 Americans are seeking or wanting to enroll in mental health services, but can't. The study reports that many of these participants are skewed to be younger in age, more likely to have lower income, and also have a military background. The study continues by highlighting that many want to receive this assistance, but they don't because they see it as inaccessible or limited. And the major barriers to receiving treatment are high costs and insufficient insurance coverage, limited options and really long wait times, lack of awareness and social stigmas. Before I continue on with the next report, I want to share an example that I found during an ethnographic interview uh, with a student. The student has been in search of mental health services for quite some time, and they finally had it where it was just a series of events that had piled up, which included death of a parent, um, the lack of, of stable shelter, financial issues, and then all of their end of semester work just piling on top of them. And it felt like they were drowning and there was there was no way out. They had been attempting to um, to get mental health services from the school, but the school was so impacted that they weren't able to to get a response at all. When they turned to an instructor, the instructor also helped in trying to, to reach out and, and find a mental health service um, through the school, but they didn't get responded to. And it's not to say that this, this school is, is bad or not responding to students, but they're just at capacity and they're so overwhelmed with the number of cases that are coming up you know, during, during COVID that they just don't have the staff, they don't have the resources, and it's insane. Luckily, that mentor was able to go ahead and, and grab that, take that student and help them find the, an alternative third-party solution, um, and they were able to get treated. And it was absolutely heartbreaking to hear this. And this gets into the next report because um, the California Health Report uh, produce a, an article titled Californians Want Better Mental Health Care, Can the State Deliver? And this, this survey that they conducted reveals that half of the participants um, demonstrated that their communities do not have enough mental health providers to meet their needs. The lack of, of availability is also backed by NAMI, the National Alliance for, of Mental Health, and they shared their findings from um, the 2001 annual State of Mental Health uh, America report from the MHA, Mental Health uh, America. Now, the report's really long, but here are the key findings. Youth health is worsening. 9.7% of youth in the U.S. have severe major depression, with the highest uh, among youth identifying as more than, more than one race, at 12.4%. So a lot of biracial youths are struggling with, with depression. And 12.4 doesn't sound like a lot, but when you take that out in, into context of the entire United States, that's, that's a very, very large number. Um, I didn't get the exact translation for how many millions of people this was, but I did for a couple others that were reported in um, this finding. So the next thing that was reported was even more, even before COVID, the prevalence of mental health illness among adults was increasing. In 20, 2017 to 2018, 19% of adults experienced mental illness, an increase of 1.5 million people over the last years in this data set. That's a lot. Then <laughs> suicidal ideation among adults is increasing. This has increased by 0.15%. That, that's basically an additional 460,000 people 
experiencing serious thoughts of suicide. And all of these numbers are provided by the MHA. And it just snowballs from here. <laughs> the percentage of adults with mental illness who are uninsured increased for the first time since the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Nationally, 10.8% are uninsured, totaling 5.1 million adults. And it, it, it's, you know, saying this out loud, it's just, it's heartbreaking. And the 2000 report also includes spotlights on the impact of COVID on mental health. And this MHA spotlight shows that the number of people looking for help with anxiety and depression has skyrocketed. And in the previous episode, we discussed how depression was already an, basically an epidemic. And it's taking the lives of many people because it drives them to suicide. Additionally, young people are struggling the most with their mental health. And the number of cases uh, of people screening for with moderate to severe symptoms of depression and anxiety has to continue to increase throughout 2020 and remains higher than rates prior to COVID-19. Um, prior to COVID More people are reporting frequent thoughts of suicide and self-harm than have ever been recorded in the MHA screening program since its launch in 2014. Again, this is, this is one of the spotlights. More spotlights include, rates of suicide ideation are highest among youth, especially LGBTQ plus youth. People screening at risk for mental health conditions are struggling most with loneliness or isolation. And this is as a result of the impacts of COVID. Additionally, people who identify as Asian or Pacific Islander are searching for mental health resources more and more in 2020 than ever before. And lastly, while rates of anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation are increasing for all people of all races and ethnicities, it's notable that um, the differences in those changes over time. So basically, it's, it's just exploding. <laughs> All right, <laughs> okay, that, that felt like, you know, that's a lot to handle. Um, I feel as though I just dropped the weight of the world just spot on to your solar plexus. <sighs> okay, so after taking a, a second to breathe on that, it becomes apparent that mental health professionals are, are really stretched thin. There's a great need for mental health services and there's a large part of the population that is in dire need of help. So this is where AI shows potential to alleviate some of the strain on limited resources or limited access to resources. In working with limited time and resources myself, I'm going to be focusing mostly on popular media searches for discussing um, my findings in artificial intelligence. I am filling the gaps in with articles and scholarly journals, but AI is not the focus of this particular project. Mental health is. So let's start off by going over a TED talk titled, Artificial Intelligence Meets Mental Health Therapy with Andy Blackwell. In this talk, Andy Blackwell reveals the potential to provide mental health treatments to patients using artificial intelligence. Blackwell himself is trained in cognitive neuroscience and psychology from St. Andrews and Cambridge and leads the 8 Billion Minds program. So what this program does is that it leverages um, deep learning and me from measuring and taking data on psychotherapy treatments and runs it through AI to teach it. And then AI is able, that AI is able to provide some essential services to communities that have little or no resources available. The thing that Andy said in this TED talk was, imagine, you know, not being in a rural area where you don't have access or there's no mental health specialists at all. And you need to go super far just to be able to get, you know, like, an you know, like your, your treatment scheduled. It's insane. And that time is, can really be the window between someone having a mental breakdown 
and contemplating suicide or getting help and calming them and being preventative and helping them address their issues. And, you know, Blackwell isn't the only one backing AI. Lily Peng uh, gave a, talk, a TED Talk called, titled Democratizing Healthcare with AI back in June of 2020. She reveals that doctors are overwhelmed and that many of the complications, and, there's a, and there are many complications in providing quick relief to patients in need. One of the things that Peng emphasized was when she would ask her seniors about why things were like this, they would just go, that's the way it is. We don't have a solution for this. And as a doctor, she really saw that there was a need to change the way that this system works. She got an opportunity to work with Google and built a team of engineers, uh, coders, and so forth. Um, and with her team, she developed an AI algorithm to detect diabetic diseases and medical health images to help doctors in India prevent millions of people from going blind. This is huge because in India, there are there are clusters of people that do live next to um, these, you know, facilities to provide to provide assistance. But what Ping pointed out was there's large segments of the population that are parents and you know workers, and they don't have the time to take an entire day to go out some from their from their hometown to another area to just get the you know the, the the process rolling and that's because they don't have specialists at their immediate facilities that are versed in diagnosing or treating these symptoms so there's a lot of stress that falls on on the patients and you know they're at risk for you know where do they find someone to watch their child for an entire day how do they deal with you know the loss of wages you know, would that potentially cost their job to take a day off? And it sounds like inhumane, but that's the situation they're dealing with. So what this AI does is that it allows doctors at their immediate facilities to be able to get access to all the information and identify um, these problems in patients so that they could just get treatment rolling immediately. And Pang also talked about um, the potential of AI to help translate medical language to patients. Um, so if you have a doc, if you have a doctor that's English speaking only, and you have a, a a BIPOC patient who needs translation, the AI can help translate anything that you need. And there's also potential for it to automate mundane tasks that would enable doctors to provide quicker and more efficient services to patients by allowing them just to focus on the core issues at hand. So I also mentioned the game industry. So what about the game industry? Well, to learn about AI and the game and, and game design, I'm using a handful of literature. The core book I'm using is AI for Games, the third edition by Ian Millington. The second book I'm working with is Behavioral Mathematics for Game AI. Whew, okay, now I'm not gonna lie. These books are thick, they are thick with three C's, and I'm very early in my research in artificial intelligence. There is a lot to learn, and I'm really, really hungry to explore AI and, you know, and get into working and developing um, you know, my, my first game AIs. But I also recognize that what I'm doing is just hitting the tip of the iceberg. And while I continue to explore AI as a game designer. I acknowledge that there, this is a very complex subject with, you know, areas about ethics, area about technical skills and, you know, what, you know, developing and where it's applied, what that means. Um, and I'm not an expert in artificial intelligence. So for this project, I may consider leaving space in the initial framework to integrate AI in a later iteration of the platform, either when my own skill set is advanced enough or if I am able to get a team member on there. In best case scenario, we may just need a very basic 
um, system that would be able to answer questions and mirror uh, that kind of behavior. And that might be a potential avenue, but we're not going to bunny hop into these later stages um, because this there's a lot kind of writing on this. And if it's not designed properly, it can be devastating to the community. And at the very core of all this is addressing the issue of mental health and what the community needs. So what I discovered from the literature review and popular media searches was that the video game industry uses AI for controlling NPCs, mirroring animal behaviors, and procedurally generating environments. I also discovered that artificial intelligence in games differs from that in research or industry technologies like self-driving cars. In a sense, the AI in games is very basic and predictable, but AI doesn't need to be complex to be good in video games. The classic example being Pac-Man. The AI programming for each ghost is really simple, but when you have four ghosts programmed with different behaviors that target the player, the game gets intense. Until this day, Pac-Man's AI is heralded for its efficiency. So when designing for AI for video games, it's important to kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. Get your mind out of the gutter. The reason for keeping it simple is that it's argued that players need predictable outcomes. Imagine if you were playing Fallout 4 and a Deathclaw started evolving their tactics to a point that players couldn't keep up with or if AI behaved in a way that seemed unnatural to a player. It could break the immersion or even break the game. This isn't to say that AI can't be used in creative ways to build more immersive experiences, interactions, and experimental narratives. Actually, I really advocate for that. The thing is, in games, it is important to get down actions and responses that appear organic. If a patrol guard hears a sound, they should respond appropriately, such as in a spy game where the user throws a can and it creates a sound. The guard will probably go over to investigate it and allow the player to slip by unnoticed and gain access to the next area. If instead in that same spy game, the player threw a can, created sound, and the patrol guard were instead spider walk up the wall and eat birthday cake. Well, there would be a lot of questions to answer about this game. <laughs> now, the other element that differenti differentiates game AI is the processing power that is available on various devices um, that games can be played on. You know, this kind of breaks down into uh, consoles, PCs, mobile phones, tablets, and, and so forth. And all of the processing power for all these devices differs. When you talk about PCs, you have entry-level PCs, which will you know, have 8 gigs of RAM, um, graphics card, and so forth, just to be able to, the bare minimums to be able to play games. Then you also have people that are enthusiasts that will build supercomputers to get the exact uh, specifications for overclocking and running at some insane frame rate. And then you have consoles which for the most part have a very similar structure and frame rate, um, specifications, and so forth. And a lot of technologies like Unity and Unreal and Godot help kind of alleviate some of these problems, but depending on the sophistication of the AI in the game, it can get really heavy and demanding on these resources. Unlike research AI, game AI can is is a lot is a lot less tolling on these resources. Research AI requires huge computers with lots of processing power and you know all these these systems for learning, um, bringing in teams to bring in um, how to memorize it, um, actions that it's learned and, and build memory and, and so forth. But game AI is a lot simpler. It has to it has to meet it has to be pragmatic, has to be executable. And sometimes there are hacks just to make the game AI work the way it should work to appear organic in the game. So what I found interesting about this too was when conducting popular media searches to see what people were thinking about game AI, there was one review on the RPG genre 
as a whole on YouTube. This YouTuber expressed frustration uh, of the genre being just kind of templated, where it's story-driven, you have similar boss mechanics across games, um, and it's kind of just the same from game to game to game. It's just skinned differently and has a different story and different characters. Well, narrative is king. I I see avenues where this this is true. Um, and the YouTuber expressed a desire to see large world bosses with, you know, that respond to, to player tactics. Um, looking to see how AI can um, interact with, with players' choices and create visible changes in the world through procedural generation. Or how certain interactions can really kind of change the narrative based off players' choices uh, or decisions or actions. And this is a valid point. I am an RPG fanatic, role-playing game fanatic. And it's true that, you know, I, again, we'll, we'll reiterate, reiterate this, the story is king. But RPGs have also received little love and experimentation and how AI is used to shape player experience. And as I learn more about AI for games, I understand some of the barriers regarding accessibility, but I also see the potential avenue to develop further. Um, we're not yet at any kind of defining stage to kind of give pitches on, on what should be done. Um, so it's just more this is an observation that there is potential for this technology to really kind of like blossom in um, an RPG setting. So now let's explore some of the pitfalls of artificial intelligence. First, let's talk about AI at the time of this recording is capable of amazing things, such as OpenAI beating a world champion Dota player, um, or DeepMind's AlphaGo uh, defeating number the number one Go player, uh, KG. However, AI is still in its infancy. To inform of the dangers of AI, um, I watched a TED talk with Janelle Shane where she talks about the very strange dangers of AI and they're not what we think they are. Surprisingly, the path that Shane um, breaks down is that these dangers aren't gonna lead to bloodthirsty terminators. The real danger lies in being stuck in doing what it is told to do and being very procedural. That means that at the time of this recording, um, AI is not at, yet at the level of sophistication to approach a task like a human mind does. It's still struggling with being able to separate images, understand what kind of things would be enjoyable to humans, what things would be safe for humans, and really kind of navigating through, through 3, 3D space. But AI is really good with data and strategy and it's currently struggling with memory, empathy, spatial awareness, and image recognitions. And these can be really dangerous for civilian safety and the precision of certain executions. On another note, a concern that rises up after watching Shane's um, program was thinking about the regulations that are currently in, in place and we currently don't have any regulations in place and this was brought up by sam harris a neuroscientist uh, and philosopher who gave a ted talk on controlling artificial intelligence harris's concerns are very different from janelle shane's as a border terminated levels of concern harris discusses the ramifications that can result of from creating a superintelligence, some of which I just listed as being, you know, you know, we have no regulations, but he, Sam puts into perspective, what does that mean for blue collar jobs? What are the ethics behind artificial intelligence and its use? What about business? How does that impact large businesses and small businesses? What about art? What about access to mental health services and who gets access to that? And it's there's a lot of these these questions that kind of go you know unanswered at the moment 
because we're still at the very early stages of artificial intelligence. And Sam gives us analogy about ants. So in his, in his example, he talks about our relationship with ants. We don't mind ants when they're on the sidewalk, in the park, or wherever they're just doing their own thing. However, as soon as an ant's actions or intentions conflict with our own, we eradicate them. Harris gave this example of an ant colony existing in the middle of a construction zone. And in order to build this ridiculously priced apartment complex, the developers just destroy that ant colony out without a second thought. The lives of the ants, you know, meant nothing. But then he draws a similar situation, but this time we're the ant colony, and our actions are conflicting with the best interests of a super intelligent artificial intelligence. So what does that mean? And, you know, there's a lot of questions about that. There's also a lot of debate in the world of artificial intelligence as to whether we're going to personify artificial intelligence and make it very human-like, or if we're going to just kind of keep it as this base um, kind of like virtual intangible, um, uh, you know, existence. And while I would I would love to to say that you know some of these worries are unfounded, we're already starting to see a lot of robots come up um, that use artificial intelligence, like Sophia, or um, the Japanese robot. Erica. Um, we also have Kiki and Gatebox, which are one which is a virtual avatar that is humanized to communicate and help address people that are going through um, moments of loneliness uh, in Japan. Or we see Kiki that is really just a kind of like emotional companion bot that is meant to kind of learn from our actions, interact and knowledge share with other Kiki bots. And while Kiki is kind of this more animal form, Gatebox and Erica and Sophia really are playing with human avatars. And we're allowing, you know, we're, go we're going down that path. Part of it is because as humans, we have a desire to socialize and build relationships, and we like to see ourselves reflected in our creations. The, there are aspects of vanity and narcissism in this, and that's why I also believe that, you know, we will have, at some point, artificial intelligence that is um, either encapsulated in a virtual um, avatar or a physical avatar, such as a robot and have that navigate through through space with us or virtual space and there's a lot of concerns that come up about what that means um, for our relationship with technology what does that do for jobs what does that do for you know mental health and so forth and in mental health avatars are currently used um, in, a, in a series of applications like replica um, and other mental health uh, AI services to help alleviate some of the, the strain of these very strapped services. But at the same time, there is, you know, questions about, you know, what is this, the role of this AI going to play long term? How immediately effective is it? Um, there's still a lot of kind of questions that are going on there. And there's also tele... Um, teleclinical services where you could zoom and meet with a psychologist. Um, I had gone over in the previous episode a couple examples like um, mood or um, better talk. And there is a lot to kind of consider and what this is going to do, how this marketplace is going to evolve, and if it's going to address uh, inclusion and accessibility. And it seems like it's starting to, but there's still a whole other slew of things of what, um, how this AI is going to regulate, what it's going to mean for our world, and what it does for the larger picture. So I feel like I keep dropping bombshells on you today in this episode, 
But let's break down the gist of everything. Research reveals that there is a growing need for mental health services, especially now during COVID. Mental health has a lot of barriers to accessibility, availability, cost, and social stigmas. Technology is a big role, plays a big role in helping address some of these issues, but it's not a panacea. And there are avenues to incorporate technologies such as artificial intelligence into mental health uh, to elevate some of these pain points, and we're starting to see that now, especially during the time of COVID. So I didn't talk about social stigmas and avatars. And this is the last thing I kind of want to mention. So when we when we talk about social stigmas, imagine for a second you have just had the worst day ever and you have a breakdown. You don't know who to turn to. You finally um, are, you know, referred to by HR to go to um, this, you know, psychologist and, you know, or mental health service provider. And there you're you're given treatment and you're identified that you have something like depression, high anxiety, and you express just burnout and, you know, all of these things that have been building up that just have been dropped on you and led to this breakdown. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, and that is completely human. But the stigmas that we have go much deeper. Imagine having to be that same person and go back into work the next day. Imagine having to, you know, kind of just integrate back into the workplace and, you know, try to avoid addressing that that elephant in the room. And there may be some very good and very kind, supportive people in your workplace, but that doesn't absolve the feeling of, of feeling outed and anxious and, you know, overwhelmed and depressed. That doesn't address all those issues. And how do you, you know, and this has been so invisible for so long. And then what happens if you, you have another job application? And let's let's go with another example. What if you have schizophrenia and you are prone to, you know, an episode given certain stimuli? And you're looking for an equal work opportunity. You're able to work. You, you know, you have your medications, you have, you know, a strong support group, everything going, but there's a stigma as to, you know, your coworkers not feeling comfortable with that, or, you know, because they're, they're not aware of what living with schizophrenia means, or even the employers. There's so much here that is about carrying that burden and being able just to come out and talk about it and to identify it and to address it as just a natural part of the human experience and it's it's scary to know that that there is that you you will feel the stigma you will feel all this and we're not yet in the point in society where it's okay to discuss that and be honest and open and supportive to one another we're getting there and we're moving forward but we're overcoming all these hurdles of accessibility we're coming all these hurdles of cost we're coming overcoming all these hurdles of like of what it means to um be mentally strong and being mentally strong on that note is also being able to accept that you have certain conditions and finding the help that you need in order to be able to be your best self and that's what should be important and we should be as a community as a people really supportive and and taking care of our community members because one bad day for someone could mean a ripple effect where someone else has one really bad day too. And we're not playing with, you know, a something that we can laugh off. We're playing with people's lives. We're playing with people's, you know, financial stability. We're playing with people's just lives. And that is very important. And on the note of avatars, I've been informed by my research using the following literature. 
role-playing games, a transmedia approach, my avatar myself, integrating geek culture into therapeutic practice, and I've also been informed by my geek certification training of the use of avatars to create this emotional distance from trauma and social stigmas. For virtual avatars, you can for tele for teleservices, you can remain anonymous. You don't have to share what you look like. You don't have to, you know, even in a group therapy, you can associate it with the avatar. In in-person therapy, that avatar, you can thrust all of that baggage onto them and say, no, that's not me, that's the avatar that is doing that. And you can take a step out and then frame and examine all of that, all of which is happening in that situation and digest it and understand and learn and grow. And with the help of a mental health specialist or um, clinician, you can start making progress through things like narrative treatment, um, geek, geek treatment, um, and, and so much more. So there's, there's a lot <laughs> to unravel here. We're getting close to finishing up this, um, define this discover phase and, you know, new information will always be coming out and informing the project and helping it grow. But w there is a dire need to make, and as a designer, there's always going to be, it's an iterative process, so there's always going to be improvements. But laying that foundation, getting this out there is what's really important. So we'll be wrapping up this discover phase within an, an, an episode or two and be moving into the define phase. And again, while new information comes in, this is an iterative process to evolve and adapt. It's, it's almost like it's living and it's very community-based um, and we're looking at ways to be sustainable. So as I wrap up this episode, I wanna say stay fantastic and don't forget to support K-Town for All, CCED LA, Knock LA, Kiwa, Invisible People, uh, SELA Neighborhood Homeless Coalition, LA Can, Ground Game, and check out Theodore Henderson. I'll put all these organizations in the description of the podcast. Thanks for your time. Thanks for joining me. Stay fantastic. Red Mage out. Thank you.